I grew up in a home where my parents were pretty strict. They tended to be more strict than my friends' parents. And I say tended, I mean like almost all the time. <laughs> and looking back, I'm very grateful for parents like my parents. They were wonderful. I'm very, but in the moment as a teenager, you don't appreciate oftentimes your parents. And there would be times where I would ask, hey, uh, my friends are going to do this. We're super excited. And, we want, and, I, and I just want to go and, and do what they're doing. And I would not get the answer I wanted. I would get a big no. You can't go and do what your friends are doing. And I'm sure there were good reasons, like probably how late we were going to be out or you know, where we were actually going, or probably the big one is who all was part of the group that was going. But it was frustrating as a teenager to be thinking you're going to go and do something with your friends and then to be told, ah, nope, you're not going, sorry. Have you ever had that, maybe not as a teenager, but even as an adult, where you wanted to go and do something and then you were told you couldn't go, you couldn't do it. Maybe it was your doctor that said, no, that's not wise. I don't know, whatever. And it's no fun being told you can't go somewhere and do what you want to do. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today because Jesus is going to tell the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that where he's going, they can't go. And they're not going to like hearing that any more than a teenager likes hearing they can't go and do something with their friends. We're continue our study in the Gospel of John. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 8. But we're in a section of the Gospel of John that began in John chapter 5, and we'll go to the end of John chapter 8. We'll finish this up in just a few weeks, this section of John. But it began in John chapter 5 when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And that didn't go over very well with the religious leaders. And that began really this this animosity toward Jesus from the religious leaders that over chapters 5, 6, 7, 8 just continue to get worse and worse and worse and grow and grow and grow until the end of chapter 8, we're going to see in a little while that they get so fired up about what Jesus is saying that they start grabbing rocks and they're going to try to kill him with the rocks. So it goes from being upset about healing a man on a Sabbath to trying to kill him, all in this section of chapters 5 through 8. We're looking at... John chapter 8, verse 21 through 30 this morning. And our context is basically the same as it's been for the last few weeks. Jesus is still in the temple courts. He's still teaching. He's still engaging with people and engaging with the religious leaders. And it looks like most likely it's still the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because as we looked at last week, as Chad was talking about it being the, feast of, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the continuity just kind of continues to go in what we're looking at in this section of John, verses 21 through 30. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage at once. I'm going to break it up into sections, but we will read every verse, but we'll go through it kind of as we go through our outline today. And by the way, just another reminder, the outlines are available as you come in. I'm sure many of you are starting to get into the habit again of that we are publishing those and printing those, and you can pick those up. They are available also online if you'd rather have a digital copy. But the first thing we see, Roman numeral one, why they can't go. Why they can't go. Because we're going to see Jesus tells these religious leaders, hey, where I'm going, you can't go. And we're going to find out why. Beginning in verse 21, let's... Uh, Let's read our passage here, first part of our passage. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, 
You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the first thing we are going to see that keeps them from going where Jesus is going is their sin. And we begin that in verse 21. John records, so he said to them again. So he says to them again. And so the word again indicates a continuity with what proceeds, but also the fact that John is like, wait a minute, (laughs) Jesus has already said this earlier, at least something very similar. If you go back to John chapter 7, verse 33, and if you've got your Bible, you might not even have to turn a page, but you can scroll up to John chapter 7, verse 33, and listen to this. It sounds very much like what we just read. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So the only thing really different is basically the same idea what Jesus is saying, other than he adds that threatening line, you will die in your sins. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So Jesus starts off and he says, I'm going away. What does he mean when he says, I'm going away? He's referring to his crucifixion. He's referring to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. I'm going away. And he also then after that says, you will seek me. What's he mean by you will seek me? Well, he's talking here that those Jewish leaders and most Jews in general were waiting for the Messiah. And unfortunately, they were going to miss the one true Messiah. And so when Jesus had gone, when he had been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the Father, they were going to keep on looking for the coming Messiah. Unfortunately, they had rejected him and they had missed the Messiah. Therefore, that next line, and you will die in your sin, based on their rejection of the one true God, the one true Messiah, they were going to die in your sins. And so Jesus is real clear. You can't come where I'm going because of your sin. Ultimately, their sin would keep them from following Jesus. Their sin would separate them from God, and it's true for us today. Our sin still separates us from God. Are we all sinners? Yes, we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 makes it real clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all have that sin condition that separates us from God. The problem, though, oftentimes, is we tend to downplay our sin, don't we? We tend to downplay it. We tend to chalk it up as a, it's just a character flaw. It's not that big a deal. I mean, that's just how I am. And look, there's people that are a lot worse, that do a lot worse things than I do. It's it's just not, it's not that big a deal. Does God ever downplay sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, a holy, righteous God that he is, he will one day judge every single sin. And there's no downplaying it. It doesn't matter. Every sin will be judged. You see, it's our sin that separates us from God. And for these Pharisees, their time was running out. And this is true for all of us. Dying in our sins apart from Jesus Christ means perishing from God for all eternity. So the warning under letter A is that time is running out and you will die in your sin. (sighs) Kind of a tough way to start a message, huh? But there's going to be hope. There's going to be there's going to be hope. Now, letter B. In fact, letter B, C, and D are really symptoms of that sin condition. And the, very first, the next thing that Jesus deals with is their arrogance. Their arrogance would keep them from going where he was going. Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, 
Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot go. It's interesting to see how the, how the, uh, the Pharisees respond to Jesus' very clear statement about them dying in their sin. They twist the words of Jesus to kind of make it make sense for them, not what actually Jesus was saying. And they're thinking, well, if he says we can't go where he's going, that must mean, because we know that we're going to heaven, that must mean that he's going to hell. Perhaps he's going to kill himself and go directly to hell. In fact, for the place in hell that's reserved for the worst people, those that take their own life. And, and, and the reason we say that is we, we read the, the Jewish historian Josephus, and here's what he said. He said, the Jews believed that a person who committed suicide went to the darkest pit of hell, that the most heinous crime one could commit was suicide, and the darkest, blackest part of hell was reserved for someone who killed himself. By the way, that's not true. <laughs> uh, that's absolutely not true. There is not a sin that we have ever committed or will ever commit that Jesus did not pay for and die for on the cross. But here we have the Pharisees mocking Jesus, saying, well, maybe he'll kill himself and go down to that black hole in hell, a place we will never go, that we certainly would not end up there. Yes, Jesus would die, but he wouldn't die by taking his own life. He would give up his life voluntarily, but it, his life would be taken by those who are now arrogantly mocking him in this moment. And here we see the arrogance of these religious leaders coming out, that they could not imagine a world where they would not go to heaven. The idea of dying in their sin was crazy. You see, they were, they, were the, they were the spiritual elite. They were the orthodox. They were the ones that kept all the rules. They were the ones that kept all the rituals. They were the important people of the day. And we see this arrogance coming out, thinking that they're more important than obviously they really are. Arrogance and pride. In their arrogance and pride, they saw Jesus' warning here as just as simply as a joke. <laughs> how dare him think we are going to die in our sin? How, how could that ever even be possible? So the warning under letter B is arrogance and pride will keep us from following Jesus. Arrogance and pride will keep us from following Jesus. And that's really a nice way of saying it. Here's another way. Because of our arrogance and pride, many will go to hell thinking they're going to heaven. Because of our arrogance and pride, many will go to hell thinking they're going to heaven. I'm a good person. I've, I do better than most. I'm, I, I go to church. All the reasons why they think they're better than they really are. And by the way, we all struggle with arrogance to some degree, right? If you've ever had the thought in your mind that, well, if I'm not there, I don't know if this thing's going to happen, or they really need me for this thing to be a success, anytime we think we are indispensable, Arrogance is beginning to creep in. I'm very grateful that God, and by the way, this is, and when I say this, is true for all of us, believers or non-believers, we all can struggle with arrogance, right? We can all think that we are, we are more important than we actually are. I'm grateful God kind of dealt with this in my life early on uh, in my ministry, that I had been at a seminary at my first church, and it was a church that was growing, things were happening, it was an exciting place to be. Uh, Cabot, Arkansas. Anybody know where Cabot, Arkansas is? And that's, that's where I was. And, it was. and I began to start believing what people were saying. Oh, you've got great ideas. Oh, you're doing this. Oh, you're doing that. And I began to think a whole lot more about myself. And God, thankfully, graciously, 
had me deal with some, some things that reminded me and showed me, no, I am not indispensable. And sometimes it's the hard lessons of life that remind us of that. But if you're now thinking, you know, when I'm involved in ministry, I don't know how it will go on when I'm gone. The truth is, it will go on. The other truth is, it probably will go on even better once you're not there. <laughs> and we don't like to hear that, but that's, that can be the truth oftentimes. We tend to think more about ourselves than we should. Let her see their worldly attitudes. Jesus responds when he says to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are, not, you are of this world, I am not of this world. He doesn't even acknowledge their suggestion that he might be committing suicide. Rather, he continues to warn them. He continues to go directly with them with the truth. And here's the deal. The Pharisees, while trying to be spiritual, had ended up kind of orientating their entire life around the world and its systems. They wanted to be spiritual, but they had bought into the world system. And we can have that tendency too. We can want to be spiritual, but we can allow the world to influence us more than the word of God. Um, so Jesus makes this statement. He says, you are of this world. And they had, the Pharisees had this focus on the world. What does that mean, that word, the world? The Greek word is cosmos. And it's an important New Testament term that we can define in this context. I want to give you a definition. I've borrowed this from, from uh, Pastor John MacArthur, but here's his definition of cosmos. The spiritual system of evil that opposes the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual system of evil that really constantly, constantly opposes the kingdom of God. In Jesus' day, in the Pharisees' culture, while they seemed like the spiritual ones, they were the ones that were opposing God's kingdom, right? Because they were the ones that ultimately rejected Jesus and put him on a cross. So they were in, in direct opposition to to, to God's kingdom. Now, they ended up, God used them for his glory and sovereignly used him, them, but they were thinking more about the world than they were about God and his truths. You fast forward some 2,000 years, and now we live in a culture. Is it directly and constantly opposed to God's kingdom? Yes, absolutely. There's no question. Now, you go back 50 years, and I know for some of you, you can't go back 50 years, but if you went back 50 years, you would think, well, our culture didn't seem quite as opposed to God's kingdom 50 years ago. And maybe, apparently, it, it, on the surface, it wasn't, but down deep, it was still just as opposed to God's kingdom 50 years ago. Now, you fast forward to where we are today and what we would call the postmodern era, and when you say, well, our, is our culture opposed to the, God's kingdom? And we just uh, quickly, many of you said, yes, absolutely. And by the way, if you're interested in kind of seeing the difference between postmodern and modern era, uh, two Wednesday nights, Pastor Russell uh, did a talk uh, entitled A Biblical Approach to uh, CRT and intersectionality. And many of you probably were there for that, but, but if, uh, if you weren't there, I'll just say this before I tie this into what I'm saying. We have recorded that, and that message will be available on the McGregor podcast over the next couple of weeks. We've broken it into two sections, so you can be looking for that. Many of you have asked about that. But he talks in that talk early on about the modern uh, era and the postmodern era and how things have changed drastically. And I'll do a quick summation that the postmodern culture we live in today, there is no absolute truth that we can't say that there is this timeless universal truth that we all should agree to that what's true for you 
might not be true for me. And what's true for this culture might not be true for this culture. And so they, we have basically gotten rid of, or at least attempted to get rid of, any absolute truth. And I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but that's the culture that we live in today. Now, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, are we dealing with absolute truths? Yes, you can nod your head, absolutely. We are talking very much about the fact that God is true, that he is eternal, and what he did through his son Jesus Christ and sending him into this world is truth. We can go on and on. That is true. The gospel message is an absolute truth. So you take an absolute truth of the gospel message and pair it with a culture that's postmodern that doesn't believe in absolute truths, we now find ourselves, more so than ever, experiencing this direct opposition against God's kingdom. And the gospel message is finding itself more and more offensive in our culture today. Would you agree with that? Especially when you say that there, you, someone says there can't be truth. We're going we're gonna to continue. And it's not going to get better. It's not going to get better. The gospel is becoming more and more offensive. And here's just a few reasons why. The gospel tells people that their works are not enough. We like to think what we can do makes a difference, but the gospel says your works are not enough. The gospel also says that your religion is not enough, that whatever faith-based system you've invested in, that's not enough. The gospel also says that you are a sinner. Talk about being offensive, right? To say that someone is a sinner. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 tells us that. But yet, someone's going to say, well, no, I, that, that's not true about me. That can be true about you, but that's not true about me. It's going to be offensive. And perhaps the one that will get them the most is when we talk and they realize that the gospel is exclusive in that there is only one way to God. You see, in our postmodern culture, you know, you've got your system of belief, you've got your framework of belief, you've got your faith-based system, you've got your faith-based, you've got your system, and we're all just kind of going the same direction toward God, right? Everybody's singing kumbaya. That's not true. How can this be true when it's diametrically opposed to what this group over here says? But yet, we come in and say with the gospel that there is only one way, that there's not a bunch of ways to God. There is one way. And Jesus said it best in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get much more exclusive than that, right? That's going to be offensive in our culture today. But just like we see Jesus here, his words were extremely offensive. He didn't back down at all. The warning here, our worldliness keeps us from seeing the truth about Jesus. A lost person will struggle with seeing who Jesus is because of their worldly orientation, their worldly mindset, their worldly attitude. But even for us as believers, we can allow the world to creep into our lives and into our faith. How do we as believers deal with worldliness? Two things I'll give you. Focus on God's word. If you're being fed more of this and less of the world, you're going to be okay as far as allowing the world to creep in. But feed on the word of God, not on the content that comes from the world. And learn to practice thinking biblically. Learn to examine what you see in and around your life and see it through the lens of scripture, not through what the news reporters say or what other people at work say but begin to think critically and biblically about what you see around you. Letter D, their unbelief. And I think this is the most important verse in our passage this morning. When Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He gets to the ultimate issue here, their unbelief. And he repeats his warning that they'll die in their sin two more times 
But then he introduces this word of hope. And it's, it's this, this word just kind of jumped off the page when I first went through this and was studying this. And it's the word unless. Underline that word unless because this is a word of a hope. It's a word of hope of escape from God's righteous judgment and wrath upon their sin and our sin as well. Look what he says. For unless you believe that I am he. Unless you believe. And what do you believe? You believe that I am he. Now, when Jesus said these words, it's, it sounds kind of benign to us today, but this would have got the religious leaders pretty fired up because to the Jewish ears, to hear that phrase, I am associated with anybody other than the eternal God was blasphemy. And the Jewish listener would have heard Jesus say this and they would have gone all the way back to Exodus chapter three. And that story is God calling Moses through the burning bush. Most of you are familiar with that story. God calling Moses through the burning bush to go and deliver the Israelites out of their Egyptian captivity. And, and as Moses is listening to God's grand plan, Moses is thinking, okay, well, well who am I going to say, who am I going to tell the Israelites is sending me? Because I'm Moses, I'm a nobody, and they're not going to listen to me. Who do I say is sending me? And we see in Exodus 3.13, here's God's response to Moses' question. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God revealed himself to Moses as the eternal God. And so these religious leaders hear Jesus connecting his life with the words I am, saying, wait a minute, is Jesus claiming to be the eternal God? If he is, that's like the highest form of blasphemy. And yes, that's what Jesus was doing. But yes, it ultimately was true because Jesus is God. He could claim, make the claim of being I am. And then once again, just a reminder of the hope that we have, that the promise that is made here for those that believe in him is a promise that still stands today. That while we are all sinners dying in our sin, for those that humbly repent of that sin and place their faith and trust and belief in Jesus, the Son of God, the I am, shall be saved. The only way to go where Jesus is going is to believe in the full revelation about Jesus and the claims that he made. So why they can't go? Four reasons why they can't go. Number two, what they don't know. Let's continue on looking, uh, beginning in verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that what I have heard from him. And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus just claiming deity for himself, the Pharisees couldn't, I mean, they couldn't believe it. And so their reaction is to ask this question, who are you? Who are you? And there must have been a lot of disdain in their voice. It must have been more like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? We are the religious elite. We are the ones that are righteous in Israel. We are the ones that are right with God. Who do you think you are in claiming that you are one with God? Why didn't they know? Why didn't they know who Jesus was? Why don't they know that? Why don't they know that? Because by asking that question, it's apparent that they don't know who Jesus is. John, a little bit later in verse 27, he says they, they didn't understand. Why didn't they understand? Why didn't they know? 
I believe it's because they were spiritually blind. They had spiritual blindness. They couldn't see. They had spiritual blinders on, and they were not able to see ultimately, truly, who Jesus was. And if we're honest, we all struggle with having spiritual blinders in our lives, right? I mean, anytime we, even as believers, anytime that we have our inner lives with, uh, there's, there's unchecked sin in our lives, Perhaps we begin to feel arrogant in certain areas of our lives. Perhaps we're feeding more on the world and its information than on God and his word. We are setting ourselves, we're ripe for spiritual blinders to begin to grow in our own lives. It's kind of like cataracts. They, they, they come in subtly, but they continue to cloud our vision and block our vision, being able to see the truth about who God is. I'll share a simple one with, with you. I, I mean, I, I struggle with spiritual blinders like everybody else. I think if we're honest, we all do. And we call them spiritual blind spots because why? We can't see them. We're blind to our blind spots, right? And back at the end of last year, God began to challenge and convict me in a particular area of my own life. You know, every morning since I had been a young adult, I had, God had, I say every morning, most every morning, God had really kind of challenged me early on in my, in my walk with him to, that it's important to spend time every day in his word and time with him. And I had developed a habit of doing that over, over years. And it looked different at different times. And not that I had never missed a day, but I was pretty faithful in that. But over the last few years in that time of spending time with God and his word, I was still meeting and having that time, but it had become a lot less about his word and about other things. And they were good things. I, I used my iPad for almost everything. And so I would bring, sit down with my iPad first thing in the morning. I would open the Bible app. I would read the word. But then I would quickly want to look at a commentary or read an article or something else that someone else had said about that. Or maybe even read a devotional through that time. And so God began to challenge me and say, Mark, you're, you're, you're not necessarily doing bad things in this moment, but you're not doing what you said you would do and what I had challenged you to do. And so beginning in this past January, uh, I have a new rule when I get up first thing in the morning that um, during the first cup of coffee, it's only the paper Bible and nothing else. No iPad, no iPhone, nothing. It's just me and God's word. And what's been cool is sometimes just the Bible and, and, and God extends to the second cup of coffee. Because now I am truly doing, spending that time. Now, not that these other resources aren't good, and I spend time reading lots of books and studying and looking at commentaries, and those are good, but that time where God wanted to nourish me through his word, I had developed some blind spots, thinking I was doing kind of what I needed to do, when in reality, I wasn't. And I'm grateful that he revealed that. Sometimes other people need to show us our blind spots. Sometimes God himself will reveal those blind spots to us. Let her be what they don't know, what they don't know. Jesus doesn't answer their question directly when they ask, who are you or who do you think you are? But he continues to, to hammer home some very pointed statements about who he is and what he's going to do. And we see in verse 25, Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. They ask, who are you? And he says, well, I've already been telling you who I am. And, and over the last several chapters in John, we see Jesus continually telling them who he is. Most recently, we've seen a couple of I am statements. I am the bread of life. And last week, I am the light of the world. We see here in verse 24, where he says, I am deity. And so he's been telling them who he is for a long time. But then also in verse 26, what he now tells them, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from 
him. So now what he tells him is he says, okay, you're sitting there. You think you're judging me. And maybe you are judging me, but ultimately, I'm the one that's going to judge you. I have much to say about you. I have much to judge about you. And when I judge you, it will be the truth in that judgment because of who sent me, God the Father. So they've got these spiritual blind spots. They, they can't hear God. It's not that they weren't listening. They just had these blind spots on. They could not hear what Jesus was saying. But Jesus gives the remedy to their spiritual blindness and how they can know who he is in verse 28. This is Roman numeral three, how they will know. And verse 28 is probably the second most important verse in our passage. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And so Jesus starts this section. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man. And when he says that phrase, lifted up, and by the way, it's three times we see that in the gospel of John. Going back to John chapter three, his encounter with Nicodemus, our passage today, and then a little bit later in John chapter 12. But those words lifted up, he's referring to his crucifixion, right? He's referring to his death and resurrection when he talks about being lifted up. And when John uses that word that we translate lifted up, he, it can be, it means to exalt or to elevate. And so John is already thinking of Christ's glorification, even in the humiliation of his crucifixion. And then I love what Jesus says next. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then, then, once I have been crucified, when I am crucified, then you will know that I am he. And there's that phrase again, I am he, that I am deity, that I am one with the eternal God, the Father. I am he. Then you will know it. And it's, and it's as if Jesus is saying, you can't hear the truth now, but one day you can't miss the truth. And really it's true for all of us. If we are going to come to Jesus Christ and understand the truth of who he is, it's at the cross, Right? It's at the cross that we truly see who Jesus is. It's at the cross that we truly come to saving faith in him. It's at the cross and what he did for us and shedding his blood as a sin sacrifice so that we won't have to die in our sins as Jesus has been talking about to the Pharisees. And so the emphasis of this verse, it points to the cross of Christ as the basis for all true knowledge in all spiritual things. The truth is, we must come to the cross to know God through Jesus, and for those of us in Christ, to know him more completely. How many of you are familiar with the old hymn, At the Cross? Curious, Al, if that's still, folks, you know, I know we don't sing as many hymns as we used to, but I grew up singing that, that hymn, At the Cross, and it's got an interesting story. Uh, the, the stanzas were written by Isaac Watts, one of the greatest hymn writers of all time, and it's one of the most powerful, powerful, theologically thick songs. Alas, and did my Savior bleed is the, is the name of that song. And that was written over 300 years ago by Isaac Watts. But about 100 years after he wrote that song, a man by the name of Ralph Hudson came along and took those words and put a new tune to it and added a chorus. And it's the chorus that we now refer to that song often as At the Cross. And those words of that chorus go like this. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the what? Light. light. You see, it's at the cross that we first see 
who Jesus truly is and what God has done for us. And he goes on. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my what? Again, coming to the cross is where we see who Jesus truly is at the foot of the cross. And we recognize truly who we are as sinners in need of a savior at the cross. Roman numeral four, how some responded. How did they respond to this message of Jesus claiming to be the eternal God? And if they didn't believe in him, that they would die in their sins. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Sounds like good news, right? Many believed in him. John doesn't tell us who the many were, if there were any of these religious leaders, any of these Pharisees that in this moment believed in him. Now, Jesus is going to continue to deal with these that believed in him in the passage we'll look at next week. But we don't know who they were. We do know that one Pharisee, we believe, did come to saving faith in Christ, and that was Nicodemus, right? John chapter 19, we see what apparently looks like he has turned and following, is following Christ. But we get to this, this saying here, this last verse that many believed in him. And I'm reminded, really, the challenge for all of us is Jesus is teaching, and some believe and some don't, that Jesus' words always call for a response. Jesus' words always call for a response. You either believe the claims about him or you don't. And that's what was happening here. And some, apparently, many believed that what he said was true, and they believed in him. Now, whether that was a genuine conversion we don't know what happened next, and, and we'll see a little bit of that next week. But that's where it starts, in believing that he is the eternal God. And so his words call for a response. And there is no in-between here when it comes to this. And just like Jesus started off in verse 21, where I'm going, you cannot go. If you are apart from Christ in your sins, you are dying in your sins, you cannot go where Jesus is. So the challenge for those of you that are outside of Christ this morning, that you would come face to face with the claims of Jesus, that you would come face to face with the truth of the cross, that you would see the reality of the cross, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that you in humility would repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ, the one that has died in your place for your sins on your behalf, and experience the eternal life that comes through that. But I know many of you here are saying, well, I've, I've made that commitment. I know I'm in Christ. What's the, what's the challenge for me today? The challenge for you today, I believe, just as it's challenged me, is that we need to be bold in our words for Jesus. We see Jesus being bold, going against the culture, saying things that would cause him grief, ultimately to the point of rocks being thrown at him, ultimately being put on a Roman cross. I think the challenge for us is to be bold. And here's why. Because as Jesus is saying these things boldly there in the temple court, people are hearing what he's saying. And people respond. Some respond. Many respond and believe in him. And my question is, how are the people around us going to respond to Jesus if they never hear about Jesus? We have the opportunity to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. And yes, we are going up. We are swimming upstream in our culture. We will, we will offend many but yet there will be some that will hear and they'll go, yes, the blinders have come off. And they come face to face with the truth of who Jesus really is. And I want to be a part of that. I want to be bolder in my proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be quiet. I know it might cost me more. It might cost me a friendship. It might cost me less popularity. But I don't care. I want to be bold. Chad challenged us last week 
to be light bearers. And I want to continue and reiterate that challenge, that we are to be bold and bright with the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we go, that we'll have opportunities this week to be bold and bright with the gospel, right? Or we can be quiet. And I want to be bold and bright with the gospel that needs to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ in a very dark and dying world.